When I was a, a young uh, person at elementary school in the 60s, I remember doing drills uh, at school that uh, were supposed to prepare us for a possible nuclear attack. Some of you who are my age might remember that. And so what we would do in that drill is we were supposed to get out of our chair of our desk and crawl under the desk. Like that would help. And uh, I was thinking about that. It's like taking this umbrella. I'm not going to open it up because it takes me too long to close it again. But it's like opening this umbrella thinking that if I have this umbrella opened and some rocks begin to fall on my head, it'll protect me somehow. Amen? All it will do is keep me from seeing what's going to take place. That's all it would do. Hiding under that desk wasn't going to help me one bit. All it would do is keep me from seeing that the explosion's about to take my life. Back in that time era, um, the United States and the USSR at that time were in the midst of a real arms race. And we were making nuclear weapons. They were making nuclear weapons. We were going to, we were going to try to see who could outmake each other in terms of weaponry. And it was a very fearful kind of time to live, very unsure uh, time to be uh, a part of because we were creating this arsenal that could literally destroy the world. And even the space race. Do you remember the space race in the 60s? We were, we were so sure that if we let the Russians get into space first, they would create some kind of weaponry from outer space to annihilate us. So we, we had to get to space first, and if they beat us, then we were upset. And, and then, at any rate, it was, just, it was just something else. Years later, Russia, the USSR, began to crumble from within. They began to have some problems with their infrastructure. And I remember a speech made by then-President Ronald Reagan when he was in West Berlin. And part of that speech, I think, is really famous. But he was sitting there in West Berlin in 1987, and he basically said to uh, Mikhail Gorbachev at that time, who was over Russia, tear down the wall. And what he was referring to was tear down the wall that has divided West and East Berlin. Russia, tear it down tear it down. And then two years later, do you remember this? 1989, the wall came down. And you know, it was a time of kind of celebration on our, our, our side of the equation because we, we begin to see that the USSR was beginning to crumble and maybe they weren't the threat they were once to us, right? No longer when we have to hide under the desks and the Cold War was seeming to have an end, and people begin to kind of go, ah. Now, if you're too young to relate to any of this, which most of you are looking at you, um, it would be like ISIS right now crumbling from within, and the threat of terrorism gone. Wow, would that change our lives again or what? I mean, if you've flown an airplane lately, you know how much we've been affected by terrorism, right? You just cannot go through a airport quickly anymore. Can you imagine if you could go to an airport and actually get out on a plane without worrying about someone blowing it up? Wouldn't that be cool? That, that's kind of what happened back then. Now, there's a reason I'm sharing all of this. It'll make sense in a moment. We are on week seven of our series, Because of His Love, and we've been looking at the minor prophets of the Old Testament. There are 12 minor prophets, and this morning we're on to Nahum. He's the seventh minor prophet, and we're going to look at his short three-chapter book that speaks of the coming judgment and removal of a threat at that time to the little nation of Judah. And, and what, what God was going to do was going to bring judgment against the superpower at that time, Assyria. And he was going to remove them 
and, and judge them. And if you were Judah at that time, these guys were a very real present threat to you. Not only were they kind of an overseas threat like the USSR was to us here in the United States, they were a real physical present threat to Judah. And so when this prediction by Nahum came out that God was going to judge Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and overthrow them, I'm sure they went, woo right? I scared you, didn't I? They were happy. They had to be overcome with relief and joy because Assyria was brutal. And they treated their neighbors with brutality and without mercy. And Nahum's name means comfort and consolation. Very appropriate name because he brought a message of comfort and consolation to the people of Judah. It predicted that their brutal enemy, Assyria, specifically the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, was about to fall. Uh, do you remember another prophet that has something to do with Nineveh? Do you remember who that was? Come on, Pastor Aaron talked about him two weeks ago. It's not a trick question. Well, you can say it out loud. Jonah, right. So Jonah and, and Nahum both talked uh, about God's dealings with Nineveh. And so I want to begin this morning by doing a quick comparison of those two books. Because this will kind of help you remember Jonah. It will help you remember Nahum and where they fit into the scheme of history and the Old Testament and ultimately the big picture of God. So in Jonah, we see that there's a disobedient prophet, right? That's obvious. If you're here for Pastor Aaron's message, I'm sure you got that point. Jonah was disobedient. He had a picture on the overhead. Jonah went exactly the opposite way that God wanted him to go. He did not want to go to Nineveh. He did not want Nineveh to do okay. He wanted God to judge Nineveh. And so he went the wrong way, literally. Now, when you look at Nahum, basically he could be characterized as an obedient prophet. He just did what God told him to do. All right, so there's a little bit of a comparison contrast between the two prophets. Now, understand, Nahum came about 150 years after Jonah. Just get that time period down. So there's about 150 years between these two prophets. And in the case of Jonah, we see a great repentance of Nineveh. It was fantastic. And God, in his great mercies that are new every morning, demonstrated that, uh, you know, he would overlook offenses, and he relented of sending judgment on Nineveh at that time because the people humbled themselves and repented. Now, 150 years from that point, we get to the book of Nahum that we're looking at this morning. Now we see that the rebellion of Nineveh has come to fruition totally, and God says, enough. Uh, we're no longer giving you any more chances. Judgment's going to come. Which brings us to the next point here of comparison. In Jonah, we see the mercy of God. We just see that illustrated in the book of Nahum, we see the judgment of God, the finality of saying, we've done this enough, now judgment happens. This is just a fun comparison. Um, it's a little bit stretchy, but that's okay. Uh, because this isn't the word of God, this is just some thoughts, all right? In Jonah, we see deliverance of the prophet from the water, right? Um, as, as Jonah's trying to run the opposite way from God, he's on the ship, they're in the middle of the storm, and things are going really badly, and, and the sailors ask him, what have you done? And he, said, and he told them that he's running from his God, and just throw me overboard and everything will be okay. So they reluctantly threw him overboard. And then we see that God, in this great mercy, sends a big fish that swallows Jonah and then barfs him up on the shore. 
I just want you to get a picture of that. That could not be a pleasant experience. All right, and we see that Jonah's delivered from the water. Yet then you get to Nahum, and you're going to see this morning that basically Nineveh experienced destruction by water. So it's a kind of way to remember some of this stuff. I'm just giving you things to hang uh, your memory on. But, but basically, Nineveh is destroyed by water. Just find that comparison fascinating. Don't put more thought into it than there is. It just helps you remember uh, what's going on in these two books. Um, Nahum has only three chapters. And so what I'm going to do this morning is really simple. I'm going to put a big idea out of each chapter. I'm going to give that to you. But then what I want to do is dive a little bit deeper into some insights uh, in the chapters and some insights especially about God. And so here we go. Are you ready for this? Because I'm going to go kind of quickly this morning. Uh, but you're quick-witted people. You'll get this. Amen? So chapter 1 of, of, of Nahum could be summarized this way. Chapter 1 is the destruction of Nineveh is decreed. The prophet makes a, a, a decree. Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. That's basically chapter 1 of Nahum. Now, what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to put the whole uh, book of Nahum up on the, on the over behind me, but I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to read to you highlighted areas of it just so you get a general sense uh, of what the book is about. And, and, and what I want to do as we begin, and, and you guys in the back, you can put the scripture up. I don't see it up there yet because I'm going to start now. Um, what I'm going to do is, is just go to these bolden kind of pieces of, of, of chapter 1 because they get at some questions that we often have. And I'll get to the questions in a moment, but for now, I'm just going to jump through this very quickly because... Nahum chapter 1 is a decree by the prophet that judgment's coming against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So you jump to verse 3, and it says, The Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. So basically, God is saying, Nineveh, you reached the point of being guilty, you're going to be punished. But oftentimes, don't people have this question? God, do you see evil? Have you, never, have you ever heard that? Where is a good God in the midst of this evil world? If there is a good God, why do all these bad things happen? Why isn't God doing something about them? He begins to answer these questions in this book. The Lord is slow to anger. He's slow to anger, but he's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Then jump down to verse 7. Pastor Aaron read that. I'm going to reread it for you this morning. The Lord is good. Now he's talking to his people. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. Don't, don't people who go through really hard times, whether it be a national thing like Israel, or whether it be personal illnesses, or maybe you lose a job, or maybe you're treated unfairly, don't we have that question, God, do you care? Can I trust in you? And, and, and Nahum says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. There's that watery judgment. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. And then just go right to the end of chapter 1, um, because I'm just going to read this, because this is, the, this is where he begins kind of a description of the destruction to come. He says this to, to Nineveh, You will have no descendants to bear your name. I'll destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. And then he gives some more words of comfort to little Judah. Look, there in the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, 
who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked evade you. They will be completely destroyed. So this is a decree. He begins this little book with a decree. And if you're on the right side of it, it's good news. If you're a Judaite, yay, right? If you're a Ninevite, woo, that's not good, right? So it depends on which side of the decree you're on, whether this is good or bad news. Um, I'm sure at this time in the, in the history of Judah, in the nation of Judah, they were thinking, God, why are you using this really wicked people or why are you allowing this really wicked, cruel people to judge your people? Why are you doing this? They're worse than us, God. I, I don't understand what's going on here. And Nahum answers some questions. He gives a defense. It's, it's, it, Nahum contains a theodicy, you know, which is, it's, it's, it's a theodicy is a, a defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. Isn't that one of the big questions that people have today? If there is a good God, why do all these bad things happen? I, just, I, just, you know, I hear people say, I just can't believe that, you know, blah, 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 right? Do you hear that? And Nahum addresses that. Built into this little book is a defense of God's goodness, a defense of his all-powerfulness in, in, in view of the existence of the evil of that time. So Nahum answers these questions. I'm just going to list them for you. God, do you see evil? Every answer to every one of these questions is yes, by the way. God, do you see evil? Nahum says he does. God, why does it seem like evil is prospering? God, do you see your people's distress? Do you see the people who are following you? Do you see what's going on in their lives? And God, ultimately, this is a question. Do you keep your promises then? Do you keep your promises? And all the answers to these questions by Nahum is yes. And that would mean something, you know, but you might say, well, so he says yes to all these. So what? The amazing thing about the book of Nahum is this. Everything he predicted, everything he decreed, happened historically just like he said it would. It actually took place. Everything he declared was years before it happened, and it all transpired just like he predicted. And so he gives us these words of comfort. Yeah, God, you see evil. Yeah, God, you see your people in distress. And they would just merely be words if it didn't really happen. Amen? And part of the purpose of a book like Nahum in the Old Testament is for you and I to learn vicariously through them that yes, God sees evil. Yes, God sees his people when they're in distress. And yes, God does something about it. It's to build faith in us so that when we, the recipients of New Testament promises like Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, we go yes and amen. That Jesus even now has gone home to the Father to prepare a place for us. And if he has gone home to prepare a place for us, he will surely return and take us to be with, with him. Amen? And we go yes and amen to that because a book like Nahum has shown us that God is credible. Amen? That's part of the purpose of the book. It's history, but it's also building into us good thoughts about who God is. I, I, okay, let me give you the insight. Otherwise, I'll get distracted. Nahum builds faith by showing that God does what he says he will do. So let's move on. Once, once Nahum hits verse 9 of chapter 1, and from there all the way through the end of chapter 2, uh, the following could kind of characterize what takes place next. The destruction of Nineveh is described. It's just described in great detail. It's an amazing description because it all happened just the way it's described. History has validated that. And let me just, again, highlight a couple thoughts out of this so you get the flow uh, from Nahum chapter 2. 
It starts off by saying, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the roads, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. So here's what's going on. Babylon is now going to become the new superpower, and they're going to displace Nineveh. And Nahum's predicting that Babylon and its allies are going to advance against Nineveh, and they're going to be able to stop them. Then if you jump down to verse 6, this is really telling. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. I need to explain this first. Because when I explain this, you'll see what's going on here. Uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was built on the confluence of three rivers. You had the Tigris running by it and through it, through Nineveh itself, two of the tributaries that, that fed into the Tigris went right through the city. Now what they had done was they had put in gates on these rivers to control flooding so that the city wouldn't flood out and they could control the water coming in and out of the city and all that. Guess what the Babylonians did when they attacked Nineveh? They destroyed the gates. So she suffered flooding. And what they once thought was an invincible fortress, it collapsed because of the water pressure. Part of the wall was breached. And guess who came in through that breach? the Babylonians and their allies. And Nineveh basically was destroyed by flood, by water. And then the Babylonians came in and they set it all on fire. Does this sound familiar? Because this is exactly what Nahum predicted would happen. You're going you're gonna to be overwhelmed by a flood and you're going to suffer the devastation of fire. And then verse 8 makes a lot of sense now in chapter 2. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. And then you get down to verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots and smoke. Anyway, you see what's going on, okay? You're getting a sense of this destruction? So when Jonah preached to Nineveh, it was about 760 B.C. And as Pastor Aaron shared really well, uh, there was a short revival, and they repented, and God relented. It showed them mercy uh, of judgment at that time, and, and, and that was just the coolest story. And then, get this, just 38 years later, 38 years after this, in 722 B.C., Sargon of Assyria, the, the leader of Assyria at that time, warred against Israel, the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom of Israel. You had Israel, the ten tribes, made up the northern kingdom, and then Judah made up of the other two tribes. All right? So God used the Ninevites to render judgment against the northern tribes of Israel at that time. And so Sargon of Assyria came. He conquered Samaria, the capital of Israel, and then he displaced the ten tribes of Israel. And they were no more. That's the end of the story. Then, years after that, um, about uh, 701 B.C., uh, the Assyrians came once again against Judah now. And at this time, King Hezekiah was over Judah. And they surrounded Jerusalem, the capital of, 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 of Judah at that time, and they were about to conquer Jerusalem, but God intervened. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 19, but it says, now, uh, Sennacherib received a report that Ter uh, Haka, the king of Cush, 
that's the king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. So he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the Lord you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard that the kings of Assyria have done to the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? And then what's really interesting is, um, um, you know, Essentially, because he's going he's to attack Jerusalem, and, and God basically takes his attention away to these uh, Egyptians that are attacking him. But then Hezekiah does something really interesting. He takes this letter of insult from the king of Assyria, and he lays it out before God. And he says, look, God, look what they're saying about you. Look at how they're insulting you. And he, and he says, basically, God, this is about you, not about me. And I think it's a really good lesson for those of us who love Jesus Christ that sometimes when we go through trials and we go through some tough things in life, what we need to do is lay it out before the Lord God and say, God, this is about you, not me. Amen, right? And God, show yourself mighty, show yourself strong. And, and, and God, I'm just laying this out for you to, and, and, and counting on you to do something supernatural. And God did, he, he did something supernatural. He delivered King Hezekiah and gang from the Assyrian attack. It's just a really cool story. So what we see here is there's a lot of bad history, a lot of bad blood between Judah and the Assyrians. Can you, can you see this now? It's a lot worse than we experienced with the USSR at the time I grew up, amen? It's a lot worse than that because the Assyrians had actually attacked them and carried away the northern kingdom and, and surrounded Jerusalem and was ready to destroy her, right? And had actually conquered some of the smaller areas uh, of Judah. And so there's some bad blood here. So I imagine there was some mighty rejoicing going on when God said through Nahum, I'm going to punish Nineveh. Listen to this, though. This is really amazing. At the time of Nahum's prophecy, which was about middle 600 B.C.s or so, uh, uh, Assyria had reached its peak in prosperity and power. It had become a mighty city. And it is said that the walls surrounding the city were 100 feet tall. And they're wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side around the walls. Okay? And every so often in these walls that were 100 feet tall were towers that were another 100 feet tall to protect the city. And if that wasn't enough, there was a moat all the way around the whole city that was about um, uh, 150 feet in width and about 60 feet in depth. And they thought they were invincible. Who could, who could defeat such a city? They just appeared that, that they were impregnable. And, and they thought they could withstand a 20-year siege. And so when he's making this prophecy, can you see the improbability of it? But that's where God shines, doesn't he? God does the improbable, doesn't he? Isn't that his SOP, standard operating procedure? God does the improbable. And soon after Nahum's prophecy, Assyria began to crumble within. And... The Babylonians attacked this city of Nineveh in 612 B.C., so about, you know, about 40 years after Nahum's prophecy, and we're told that they destroyed the gates, and one of those walls just collapsed because of water pressure. And I don't know if you guys, uh, you, you, water's so strong, isn't it? 
It seems like it's, a, it's sometimes a force you can't control. And down comes the wall, and the Babylonians go in, and they take the city, and they utterly destroy it, and they burn it, and just like was predicted by Nahum. And what we're supposed to say is, oh, okay, God, you do ultimately judge. You do see the distress of your people. You do address evil, but you do it in your time and for your purposes. But at any rate, let's talk about the events of Nahum verified because there's archaeological finds from the city of Nineveh that, uh, that kind of verify, there's historical accounts that verify what Nahum prophesied. So Nineveh was destroyed by the flood, by a flood. And they, they, they verified that. That was part of the way she was destroyed. By archaeology, they verified that. They have verified that a big portion of Nineveh was destroyed by fire. Shouldn't surprise us. Amen? Because that's exactly what Nahum predicted. Nineveh has no descendants. And i am just got the scripture there referenced in Nahum where it says that. There is record that there was an easy capture. The fortresses around Nineveh was super easy for the enemies. They just, they just came in like, like, like a flood. Ha! Anyway, that play on words, sorry. Anyway, and they took the fortresses around Nineveh. And then there's definitely recording of the destruction of the gates. That was the methodology used. So what, what I'm just trying to say here is this. Nahum is supposed to build faith in you and I. That, that God will do what he says he'll do. That God doesn't ignore evil forever. And God does see the distress of his people. Let me just talk in chapter 3 real quick. And then I want to get to our big takeaway this morning. Uh, uh, my third point of the message here is simply the destruction of Nineveh is deserved. So we see that the destruction is decreed, it's described, and then it's deserved. Okay, and let me just say why here by summarizing chapter 3. It's obvious in chapter 3 of why judgment was coming against Nineveh. First of all, it begins with this. Woe to the city of blood. Not a good reputation, amen. Jump down to verse 3. Um, many casualties, piles of dead. That was their kind of legacy. And then go to verse 4. They did this because of wanton lust, wanton lust. And continue on in verse 4. They enslaved nations. And then if you jump all the way down to the end of chapter 3, it simply ends by saying this. All who hear the news about you clap their hands. They're happy at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And then I was doing a little research on, on, uh, on just the Assyrians and then and what they had done to the people around them, and man alive, when you start reading about it, it's just, it's shocking. Um, there's some panels that they've uh, unearthed there that depicted in picture form uh, uh, some of what the, 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 the Ninevites and the Assyrians had done, and there's our reliefs with people being impaled, decapitated, flayed, tongues pulled out, other reliefs that they've unearthed show uh, the Assyrians making people grind the bones of their dead ancestors. There's other reliefs showing vultures plucking the eyes out of the dead. There are so many dead piled up that they're plucking, you know, the, the birds are eating them. One panel shows this soldier who's receiving a bracelet because he's decapitated five prisoners and the heads are laying there at his feet and he's getting a reward for doing that. This is the Assyrians. At that time, okay? This is why God's judgment was rendered against him. Now, let's talk about the takeaway here, all right? This is the important thing I want you to, 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 to focus on with me. Uh, the takeaway I see from a book like Nahum is this. Trust that God will do what is right in his time and for his purposes. Think about this. God relents because of the ministry of Jonah and didn't send destruction at the time, but just 
38 years after that, we see Nineveh's back up to her old kind of ways. And then for another 100 years after that, she's treating everyone around her with this cruelty. Now, say you're growing up in that era, that 100 years. That's when you come on the scene. Say you're an Israelite in Judah at that time or another one of the neighboring nations to uh, Assyria. What would be your life experience? Your whole life, what would you experience? Unchecked evil, cruelty, unheard of acts of violence, right? What would you think of God? Would you say, well, I think God's good and he's in control and he's sovereign? Would that be your natural tendencies? No. Why? Because your life experience would say everything contrary to that. And that's the purpose and point partly of Nahum, that we do not succumb to that erroneous thinking, that we don't base our understanding on God of, of our life experiences and our small snapshot of history. Partly why Nahum is there is so that we see a bigger picture and a bigger understanding of who God is. He will not let evil go forever. There will be a day of reckoning. We may not see it in our time and our way like we'd like to, but Nahum assures that it will happen, and then history verified that it happened so that we trust God is in control, even if we're going through some really difficult times. Amen? And some of us have gone through difficult times in our lives. Some family situations that aren't good, perhaps, or, you know, some medical things that you're facing that are just really difficult. And you can wallow in that moment and think life is really bad and unfair, or you can understand that God is over everything, and he's working in his ways for his purposes and for his goodness, like we sang about, amen? He's good, he's good, he's good, he's always good, isn't he? That's part of the point of the book of Nahum. So we get that and understand that and become convinced of it. I shared another point first hour, but it was so terrible, I'm not sharing it this hour. You probably wonder what that is now, won't you? I shouldn't have even said that. But, but here's what I want to bring us to. There is a day coming when God says, like he did with the case of Nineveh, I'm done. We're done. It's the end of the age. And there's going to be two distinct sides to that moment. Those who love Jesus Christ, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're going to be so happy because Jesus has come back and establishing his kingdom and fullness and all that. But guess what? There are going to be people on the other side of that equation who don't know Jesus Christ, and they're going to have to go through what is called the great white throne judgment. That is for unbelievers, those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And they're going to have the worst day of their life. I always say this, this is how God works. Oftentimes, for one group of people, it's the best day ever, and for the other group of people, it's the worst day ever. And that's what it's going to be like at the end of the age with the great white throne judgment. Nineveh and what happened to Nahum gives us a snapshot what's going to happen at the end of the age. There's going to be a judgment that those who have rejected Jesus Christ, they're going to be judged, and that's going to be a horrendously horrible day. Now, we should never be saying, Jesus, come and judge these people. That should never be our hearts, because that's not the heart of God. In fact, some in the Bible were saying, where's God? Why hasn't Jesus come back again? What's going on? And we're told that God's not slow in his return. He's not unresponsive, but he's, he's merciful, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's delaying his return so people can come to salvation in Jesus Christ. God didn't want to judge Nineveh. He gave them multiple chances over and over and over and over and over and over again. And God's doing that very thing right now in our time. He's saying to people, I'm slow in my returning because I want you to come to salvation, amen? 
And so you and I, we shouldn't say, come, Jesus, and judge these people. We should say, oh, God, I want your heart. I want your heart for those that are far from you, that don't know you. I want them to know you. I don't want them to perish and spend eternity in hell. Amen? And so part of Nahum is giving us a picture of what's to come at the end of the age to create in you and I urgency for those who are far from God, to care about them and to care about their eternal destiny. And they begin to pray for them and talk to them and be concerned about them. And we should never as Christians say, oh God, I just want you to come make everything right, you know, so, so judge all these dirty rotten people. That should not be our attitude. Our attitude should be, oh God, I don't want them to be eternally separated from you and to undergo that judgment. Because there was nothing good about the judgment of, of the Ninevites. It was right, and it was, it was good in that God did it, but you follow what I'm saying? We shouldn't rejoice that our enemies perish. That should never be the heart of the follower of Christ because it's really not the heart of God. He just brings judgment because it's time, and he's doing it in this time and for his purposes. And one day that's going to happen, and I, I just pray that we have a heart like God and we care about people. Amen? So that's what I'm going to end today. We're going to get to Habakkuk next week. <laughs> he wrestles with God. Listen, if you have a wrestling match with God, he's going to pin you every time. Amen? Just think on that. I'm salt and oats for next week. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for the book of Nahum. And I remember just looking at the beginning of the week and saying, oh, my, 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 what have I done here again? Because it's a hard book to read. It's, uh, it's, it, shows, it shows with clarity that you, you come to a point where there's no return. And evidently, Nineveh had hit that point. And it's not because you're not merciful. You are mercy, merciful God. And your mercies are new every morning. And, and you're long-suffering and you're patient. And you don't want anyone to perish. But there comes a time when it's done. And a reckoning for cruelty and, and uh, an unrepentant heart will be, will be, you know, called upon. It just will be time. And I just want to pray, Lord, that we would take um, the book to heart, that, God, you do see evil. You do see your people who are in distress. You will address all these things in the proper time and for your purposes, God. Help us to just trust that and be convictional of that, Lord, and that. I just pray that we would not doubt your goodness, doubt your sovereignty, because we're going through momentary afflictions and trials, Lord. Help us in those times to cry out to you and to hold on to you and to cling to you more than ever, Lord, because we know, God, that you're a loving God who's merciful and uh, you look out for your people. So we praise you today, Lord, for the book of Nahum, how what Nahum said just took place so literally, Lord. I pray that instills faith in us today to trust in your promises, Jesus, that you're going to come back again and you're going to make all things right. We, we love you and praise you for this uh, book of Nahum this morning, Jesus. And all God's people said,